0: Good morning everyone. Good morning. Welcome to our first service of 2020. Here, In case you didn't know that, you've been uh, out of the country or whatever, we are in 2020. If you would please turn to First John this morning. The Bible should open to that by now. To chapter 5. I will confess that I was going to do the last nine verses this morning, but uh, on Friday, I decided to cut it to two. And uh, sometime very early this morning, I felt we are going to only do one verse. Uh, I Otherwise, I don't want to do a drive-by on these verses. It's There's just too much there. There really is to just lump it together in a big lump and do it. So uh, we are going to look at actually just one verse today, mostly one verse, although we'll be looking at other verses. But it's a topic that is definitely something as Christians should be in the forefront of our minds and hearts, and it's dealing with eternal life is what we're looking at today. The the title of the message, I believe, says... uh, Things every Christian should be certain of. And we're talking about certainty today. And John in chapter 5 here, these last nine verses, is listing five things that every Christian should be certain of, that we should be sure about. As Christians, you know, we, we live in a world. Let me pray first, and then we'll, I'll get into it. Let's, let's pray, please. Father, as we come before you now to continue to worship, as we look at your holy word, Lord, I pray, Lord, you would help us all to understand why you've written these things, Lord, And help us to know, Lord, that we can be sure, that we can be certain, that we have a faith, Lord, that is absolutely certain. So this morning, Lord, as we look at one certainty of faith in you, we pray you would bless this time and may it go deep in our bloodstream, Lord, and change us to be more like Christ. We ask the Holy Spirit to come, help me now, and help those in the pews, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. There aren't too many things I, I believe we can look at in this world and feel certain about them. For the world itself, if you were to ask an unbeliever, what are you certain about what are you absolutely sure and certain about I wonder what they would tell you could they tell you anything you know they might give you the light answer about death and taxes usually everybody will say well the only thing we're sure about is death and taxes Uh but I wonder what actually is a great answer to get from an unbeliever because then I would focus in on well you believe death is certain what do you believe what are you certain about after death and to just kind of get them to start thinking most i i shouldn't say most but i've a number of times when i've talked to people who are unbelievers they'll say something like if you talk about death which people really don't like to talk about too much in Fact: You ever want to like dampen a party in a group of people talking about sports and their houses and their new cars and their concerts they've been to? Bring up the subject of death. You, the conversation will just like shrink, and people start to walk away from you. You know, <laughs> but it's true. It's true. You know, I had that experience with a boss in in the place I was working. He happened to walk in. He was the head of a corporation great guy to work for a very accessible guy and he's walking in the employee cafeteria and at that moment i happen to be saying to the guys well tell me guys you know what is your purpose of life ultimately and what's going to happen when i mentioned death what'll happen when you die and they were like you know talking and it was but i saw the the big boss just he looked at me and he went up. Uh, this is too heavy for me. And he just walked out of the kitchen quickly like that. That's the way people feel about it. They don't like to talk about it. But if you think about it, what certainties does an unbeliever have? There is nothing certain. Even in this life, what can we as believers be certain of? Think about it. We take out insurance policies and extended warranties. I... Carol and I bought a new Subaru in in August, a Legacy. And the salesman, I'm telling you, raved about the car, praised it up and down. It was the greatest automobile made in the industry. It was great, this and that. And then the day we came back to sign and pay for it, they send you to a guy who does the extended warranties. I almost wanted to say, did you ever talk to the salesman? I mean, what, basically, what are they doing? They're, they're swearing this car is the greatest car in the world, and then the guy's basically saying, that's eh, not that good. You need to take your extended warranty on it. I mean, that always kills me. They pu- or if you buy an appliance, the guy will push you to G-O-G-E, oh, the oldest, greatest company, this and that. And he says, now, it's only a year warranty. Do you want to extend it for another three years? It's only $140. It's like, so basically you're telling me it's not that good. You know, there are no certainties. That's why we have uh, accident insurance. We don't know what's going to happen. We just don't. And I could could go on about that, but you, you get the idea. I don't want to waste time on that. There really is nothing in this life that you can be certain of unless you're a believer. We are the only people in this world who have a certainty an absolute certainty but the question is do you feel that way about it because I've heard Christians even say I hope I go to heaven that's sad that is very sad to hear a Christian say I I think I'm going to heaven I remember talking to a, a Catholic once very faithful Catholic he worked at the same place I did he was like the third in command there but very accessible guy and we both at the same age so he kind of even though I was you know I was down you know at the bottom of the feeding chain in the company but he would always you know spend time talking with me when we was free and I was was talking about uh, eternal life one day with him and and he always talks that he's a Catholic and he would talk about his Catholic faith. And I, I said, Bill, I said, uh, because he said to me, he says, what's the good word for today? I said, what's the good word? The good word is that when we die, we're going to be with Christ. And he said, hmm. And he had like a, a, a sad look on his face almost. And he said, well, he said, uh, no, one's ever, no one's ever come back to confirm that. And that's when I said, "Really?" I said, "Why do we celebrate Easter?" And you know, he said, "Well, well, you know." But people, they, they're not as certain as they should, even Christians. And John, if you remember, why did he write this? That we may know. He uses that word thirty-nine times. I believe it's. I, I could be off a, a no or two, but around thirty-nine times he says. I write this so that we may know, or we know, or they know. He's saying something is certain here. This is something you can bank on. He's saying, we know. In this last section from verse 13 to 21, John uses the word know seven times. In fact, let me look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's going to be our verse today. But look at the rest of this. He says in uh, verse 15, And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Then go to verse 18. We know... That anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come. He keeps using that phrase over and over. We know, he's trying to say, You can be certain, you can be sure of this. These are not, as Peter said, you know, these are not some some stories made up. He says, We were there. We saw him on the mountain. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's saying, we're eyewitnesses to this. John was an eyewitness. But John is making it clear. He's saying no. In fact, John uses the word for no. There's several words for no. He uses the word oida. That means divine revelation. It's knowing outside of your own feelings. He uses that six of the seven times here in this portion I just read. John's making a point here. And if you recall, the whole book was written for Christians who were still in a church where a lot of people had left because of false teachers. And they weren't sure. And he said, well, look, I'll give you a test. I'll give you a moral test, he says, as far as, he says, do you have obedience to God's law? Do you love others? Do you love God and do you love others, he said. That's what Christians do, he said. If you're doing that... That's a sign that you're a Christian. He gives him a doctrinal test. He tells him, do you believe in the right Jesus, that Jesus is all God and all man? He says, well, that's what a Christian believes. You believe that. Then he asks him, he says, and he says, do you believe that we have a sinful nature and we struggle with sin? He says, that's, that's what Christians believe. So he's giving him these tests to say, you're passing these tests. You can know. And that's when he gets to our verse today, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He says you can be sure that you have eternal life in this uncertain world. But you know, the Bible is filled with absolutes and certainties. There are no absolutes that people believe in in this world. If you really look at it we are a people who based on truth everything is relative today truth today is subjective it's from us it's what we f- it comes from within man god's truth has objectivity it's outside it's objective truth it's a truth that's outside of us but people have no absolutes today. This is why we're in a world, everything is relative. It's what you believe is right and what you believe is right. And yet, if you tell them you believe the Bible is absolute truth, they'll tell you you're wrong. <laughs> like that. That's when they don't believe in, in, that everybody has their own view of it. But the Bible teaches us absolutes. When, when in Numbers 32 23, it says, You may be sure that your sin will find you out. That's an absolute. That's a certainty. God says your sin is going to catch up with you at some point. You can count on that. That's a certainty. When Isaiah, Isaiah says you know, that he, car- he carried our sorrows, that he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, uh, Isaiah 53, 4. That's an absolute. Christ took those from us, for us you know how we know it's true because he was resurrected from the dead Paul makes that clear he says that it's confirmed by his resurrection from the dead that he is the son of God see Jesus could have said all types of things but when he was raised from the dead that confirmed everything he said there was absolutely no argument with that and I always love that people always think oh it's impossible for someone to come back from the dead. What does the Bible say? It's impossible for Christ not to, be, not to come to life again. It would be impossible for him to stay in the grave because he was sinless. You know, so the world looks at it that that's impossible, but the Bible says, no, no, for him to remain dead would be impossible because he's sinless. But anyway, let's look at this on eternal life today a little bit. We have a tendency to look at eternal life. When you think of eternal life, what do you usually think of right away? I'm going to live with God forever. And that's correct. That is eternal life, living with God forever. But there's more to eternal life than that. It's not only a quantity of time, but it's a quality of life. Eternal life is a quality of life. It's having the presence of God, God living within us. The reason we have eternal life is because He lives within us and He is the life. He is eternal life. That's why we live forever. Because Christ is in us. If Christ is not in us, we're going to die. And when we die, we're going to face punishment. We're not going to be with Christ. But we can be certain in an uncertain world. John makes the point of that here when he says, I write these things for you who believe so that you may know. This is the purpose of the book. When John wrote his gospel, at the end in chapter 20, verse 31, he wrote it for non-Christians to say that by believing in this, you can have eternal life with Christ. But... In 1 John, he's writing to Christians, those who already believe, and he's reminding them that you can be sure that you have assurance of this. Look, he says in verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He's referring to prayer. But again, he uses that word confidence throughout this thing. He keeps trying to let us know that we can be sure here. All right, let's 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 look at quickly this idea of eternal life. In John, in Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer in chapter 17 in verse 3. In fact, I, I'd like you to go there with me. Let's look at it together. It's chapter 17. It's when Jesus, the night before his crucifixion and he's praying to the father he first prays for himself then he prays for his immediate disciples and then he prays for us it's a pretty incredible thing isn't it here we have the words later on of Jesus praying for those who would believe in the future but here look at verse 1 he says father the time has come That's meaning his time now is ready to go to the cross. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent saying this is eternal life to know God God who takes residence in us in fact we know that he lives in us because we have the Holy Spirit in fact Paul refers to that let while you you have your Bibles open I'm gonna make you work a little bit go to the book of Ephesians please And I'd like you to go to chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians, verse 13, in chapter 1 of Ephesians. If you want to just listen, that's okay too. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now listen, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We, ha- we were marked with a seal. He says the, it's a guarantee. It's a down payment. He says that Holy Spirit in you is letting you know you're guaranteed eternal life. You're guaranteed you belong with God forever. He says that. Paul says it this way in uh, in Romans chapter 5. He's talking about hope. And he says, And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out His Spirit into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom we have received. He's saying, You know, he's saying, The reason you know you can have hope that you have this certainty, you have hope in eternal life that it's good, it's a done deal because He's poured out His love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit which is God's mark is God's seal upon us. It's His guarantee. Do you ever wonder about going to heaven? Do you ever think about I hope so. I think I think if everybody was honest here, only if everybody was honest. And looking at this group, it's not a good percentage. But, but anyway, uh, (laughs) just a joke. But thinking about it, thank you, David. You get a you get a mark for that. Uh, But thinking about that, why, why are you concerned with it? You know, it's one way to be really reassured to read the scriptures. How do we develop and grow our faith? What does the word tell us? Faith comes by hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. That's NIV and you probably know it a little differently. But I have all the NIV memorized. I'm too old to go back and learn them from the pew. are the, the, the American Standard, so you get stuck with those NIV verses here. It's, it's too late. For me. but. Uh, you, th- you think about that. Don't, don't get rid of those thoughts when you start to question and wonder. Go to the scriptures. That's a rock. You know what I love in, in the Old Testament? The Israelites. How many times would they refer to God as what? Their rock. Their rock, they'd call them. My rock and my redeemer. What's the picture of a rock? It's something that doesn't move. It's absolutely solid. You can stand on it and know you're on. David, when he, uh, when he writes, what was it, in Psalm 40, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the muck and mire. He set my feet upon what? A rock. A firm place to stand. God is the rock. Christ is the rock. And that's how do we build our faith. By, by learning from the Bible. The Bible is what? The Word, the written Word of God. And who is the rock? Christ. Well, this is the rock's Word we're reading here. This Bible is a rock It's absolute truth. We can stand upon it. Yeah, our human side questions us like that. We all have that moment. You know, you're in the shower, and all of a sudden you close your eyes and you wonder, gee, if when I die, is it going to be, you know, am I going to be able to see the light again? Or am I, you know, because you've got your eyes closed now, you're thinking of that kind of stuff. Everybody wonders that. But we go back to the word of truth we go back to what is absolute what is certain we go back to this book of objective truth it's not man's wisdom it's the wisdom and truth of God that we can count on for that we I, I because if you have questions always you're kind of not sure if you don't have assurance like John is trying to get these people to say you have eternal life You believe in all these things. You believe in the right Christ. You believe in the doctrine of sin. You understand your sinful condition and what Christ has done for that. You obey God's word. You love God's people and stuff. He says you can be assured that the promises that come with that are yours, that you have eternal life. And I'm going to conclude by doing just one more thing this morning. Would you go to, if if you're in Ephesians or stay in Ephesians, I want you to go to chapter 3. Just for a moment. Just look at what Paul's prayer is here for the Ephesians in verse 14 of chapter 3, uh, verse 14 of chapter 3. In verse 14, he's praying, he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. And when he says he, he's kneeling, he's not talking about physical kneeling. It's a sub, complete submission and reverence for God. He's saying, I'm submitting myself before God. I I, I kneel before the Father. He says, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Whole family in heaven and on earth. He's talking about all the believers who are in the past and in the future. That whole, the universal church. And he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Remember, this is Christ in you. And He says that that Spirit of God would strengthen you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. When He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts, He's saying that Jesus may really be at home with you that your heart is is being cleansed of your sin. You're not holding on to sinful things. You're not holding things there, but you're allowing the Holy Spirit to come in you and cleanse you. That's, That's where sanctification requires our part. You know, salvation, when we're justified, that's God's work. He saves us. He does the work. But sanctification is where we have to also cooperate with the Spirit. We have to be willing to let go of those things that hold us back from really putting our faith and trusting God. That's the process of sanctification. That's when Paul says, you know, therefore work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he says. When he talks about working out our salvation, this is working out our salvation, dealing with the sin that's there, not just indulging in it and engaging or taking the wrong thoughts and letting just wander and have fun in there but it's to stop it and say no this is wrong I mustn't do it sometimes I'll be honest with you I, uh, out loud I'll be with myself at least I hope I'm alone because if people people are watching me think I'm crazy but I'll actually you know a thought will come into my head that doesn't belong there and I'll actually go stop it you know, reading about me in the papers, some guy walking through a and shop, going, oh, 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 you know, just talking, walking like. But, but I, I, actually will say, stop it. I'm talking to myself, but I almost to say it out loud because I have to break that thought at that time and say, this is wrong. This doesn't belong here. This doesn't belong in in, in Christ's, you know, person, person of God. Doesn't belong there, you know. And then I repent. I tell him I'm sorry, and I mean it. And we move on. I recently had a conversation with a brother, which was so refreshing. I won't say his name, but after church, he was just referring to how all day long he has these conversations with God and repents at times. That's healthy. That's a healthy Christian. As far as I'm concerned, that's a live Christian. And again, we're not talking about somebody who's ridden with all this kind of guilt and neurotic kind of, oh, I said, oh, I thought this, oh, I did this. No. But the kind of thing where you know it's wrong and you find yourself engaging in it, you stop and you repent. That's what grace is there for, you know, but to keep going and going and then come to God. Well, that's kind of, that's, that's, cheapening grace, I think, you know, when we're aware of it is the time we do, otherwise we're sinning. The old illustration Billy Graham gave of, you know, the man riding on the bike. I've said this before. When you're riding a bike, says and this man sees this beautiful girl as he passes by and, and he thinks, Wow, it's a beautiful, what a beautiful girl. And he keeps going. He said, but if that man turns his head around and takes that second or third look, he says and he falls off the bike. You know he crossed the line of sin at that point. And I think that's a good illustration. You know, we got to know when we're aware of something, we do it. But here, Paul says now, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why does the Holy Spirit, why do you want the Holy Spirit to dwell in an unholy place, in a place filled with sin? You know, we should want to be cleansed of those things and make room so Christ is at home in our hearts where he dwells with us. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp, and look at this, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Wow. Try to grasp that. (laughs) you know it's so big but paul is saying it's so great but he's asking god to help us that we may begin to understand because the more we understand how great god's love is for us and what he's done for us the more we're going to move toward him and trust him and believe him it's a it's a process Faith grows, but it has to grow by allowing us to kind of, you know, lay back and know that God is going to catch us. You know, the old game where you say, go ahead, lean back, and, you know, and the person to, to build up trust and fall into my arms. Well, you know, it's, what, it's the same thing with Christ. You know, the more we, we, we take that risk, we feel like, oh, this is going to be death. And we, we say, but I'm trusting you, Lord. The more we trust, the more, because he's not going to let us go. You can count on him. And to know this love, he says, oh, this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to To his power that is at work in us. That's eternal life, that power of God working in us, that quality of life. We have Christ in us. That's part of eternal life. It's not only living forever with God, but it's possessing the life of God within us. That's why the moment you're saved, that's when eternal life starts. It doesn't start when you die. It starts now. Christ is living in us already. The one who is eternal is in us. And we also have that eternal life. And he says that work is within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We could go on and on about this, but John wants us to know, God wants us to know that we have eternal life And that eternal life is in us now. It's not only forever. Forever, the, the period of time. It's a quality of life. Are you living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? As he says. And when we think about this, what we have, that we have God's presence within us. He lives within us. You want a good meditation? Think about that. Think about that the Holy Spirit of God lives in me that christ is in me that's a meditation you can go for quite a while on and just start to go through and ponder that for a while and realize this is profound what's what's happened to me you know sometimes we can we can be in the faith for years and years and all of a sudden something like that comes upon us and we go holy smokes I never thought about it this way I never thought so deeply but think about this we're going to take communion this morning and why do we have eternal life because of what Jesus did for us that we can have him come and live within us because he was willing to take up our sins and die for us we now have the life of Christ within us and we'll have him forevermore Because of that. And I'll end with that. Amen.